Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Okay, it's a little bit later on Thursday. And I have a whole bunch I have to do the next several days, uh, next week, which is a good thing, I guess. But it means I have to get these out of the way, one after the other, uh, especially in time for next week. So I'm going to do one now, history one, for uh, my good friend Rabbi Stephen Weil. Uh, I believe his grandfather's yard is coming up on Sunday, I think he told me. And this is being um, sponsored in his yard site, in memory of, uh, let me see, Yisachar ben Shmuel HaLevi, Bernhard Weil, uh, who rebuilt his family, his business, and the Jewish people as a cattle de- dealer, Baal Tzedakah, and a man of in- impeccable integrity. Aha. Uh-huh. And he settled in upstate New York. I know that from Unterfranken in Germany, having lived in the same town, the family, for 300 years before Hitler. Okay? Before Hitler. So, pay tribute to the memory of Yisachar ben Shmuel Halevi, very Yekashen name. Since Rabbi Weil is from that part of Germany, the western and south and western particularly, all that area, so he told me he's interested in Frankfurt, although you can't do Frankfurt, that's a gigantic subject, um, really a gigantic subject, because the Ir Baby Israel has been a Jewish community a thousand years, uh, up and down, up and down, and... Uh, Instead, what I said I'm going to do is a, a, a piece, a little piece of the uh, very long and remarkable history of the Jewish community in Frankfurt. Um, probably one that not people too many are familiar with. It's famous in certain historical circles. And that's the Asifas uh, Rabbonin, what they call the Synod of 1603. It's not a household uh, thing, but it should be. And in order to explain this, let me just say, Frankfurt is a city in the Main River, obviously in western Germany, not too far from the Rhine. If my trip ever happens, right now I'm working on an Israel trip, as you know, in the second week of January. But after that, I hope in the future to do this Frankfurt to Normandy to uh, to Omaha Beach trip, and then we'll do the Frankfurt part. But um, it's not far from the Rhine. That's exactly where Rabbi Wells' family comes from, that area, a little south of that. And um, the Jews have an up-and-down experience because Frankfurt really for a long, long time was extremely anti-Semitic. I mean, extremely so. They really hated the Jews. However, in a classic battle of the heart versus the mind, or perhaps I should put it the heart versus the pocketbook, so they knew the Jews, if they settled there, bring a lot of business with them. And Frankfurt is always a commercial uh, kind of place. It was eventually a, almost a city-state within the context of the Holy Roman Empire. It wasn't part of any other Medina. And everything depends on, on uh, revenues. And uh, where Jews went, you know, you, there was trade. Understand this well. In the old economies, from long ago, there were no factories and manufacturing. Still the era of the guilds. You know, if you want a pair of shoes, you have to have a hand made by a shoemaker, and he's got a monopoly. Nobody can mass-produce shoes and just applied it across the board. So there's no possibility 
of building up your revenues by manufacturing on a mass scale. LMI, you have to have business people who are traders. They bring stuff in, they move it out, and that uh, fructifies your economy. Uh, it means ships are coming in and out, whether in this case on the river, uh, caravans or the equivalent of that are moving back and forth. And while that's happening, so you're contributing to the economy of a of an old city. And, you know, people coming in, coming out, that means that the people in the restaurants are making business and the barbers are making business and the butchers and everybody's making business. So you need the damn Jews. I mean, that's what it boils down to. They hated them, but they said, you know, so from Frankfurt, every once in a while, they would have a pogrom or to kick them out or something like that. And then, like I said before, the pocketbook would assert itself over the heart. And there was a, even when they let the Jews in, it was always under terrible conditions. Very anti-Semitic. Real bunch of schmoes. But the Jews wanted to be there because the business possibilities were there. And it's a beautiful countryside. And anyway, that's what happened. Now, the Jews were confined to a very small area. And the Frankfurt ghetto, as it emerged over centuries, didn't happen overnight. It turned into a very narrow and unhealthy kind of place. Eventually a terribly unhealthy kind of place. But So it looked like a slum. But it was not a slum. That's the point. You can have bad living conditions, housing conditions. It depends on the people. It doesn't have to become automatically what we call inner city neighborhood. There were schools and yeshivas and culture and synagogues and chevres. In the midst of all that narrowness and dirt and insalubrious climate and all the rest, it's quite a place. And being Jewish, of course, they have plenty of machlaikas. Now, um, if anybody really wants to go into nitty-gritty detail on the history of Frankfurt community. I'll tell you the source in a second. Um, but I want to direct my attention now to one of a million different details, and that's the famous Asifas or Abonim of 1603. I guess that would be Shin Samach Gimel, I guess. Now, we're talking about German Jewry, who went through tough times. Polish Jewry did not have it anywhere as bad as the German Jews. You see what I'm saying? That's goofy why the Jews moved to Poland. They were treated much better. In Germany, it was tough. And um, difficult conditions can bring out the best in people, but it can also bring out the worst. So it is true that communities had great uh, and from people, pious even. They also had bums, counterfeiters, most rim all over the place. It was terrible, the, the most rim. Um, cheaters on kashras and all this stuff. You get what I'm saying? Tough times bring out the best, bring out the worst. And so when you study in a serious way, not simply in a hagiographical and pietistic way, you know, the German Jewry in the earlier centuries particularly, uh, it was tough to make a living. You find really tzaddikim uh, remesham, you know, the, 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 whole, the whole gamut. Now, one of the ways you know this, not the only way, is uh, by the fact that every once in a while, the German Jews tried to deal with the social problems that they had, Jewish problems, in the old-fashioned, classic, top-down way. It's part of Orthodox Judaism. You have this kind of like authoritarian structure, or at least a faux authoritarian structure. And theoretically, it's built on the idea 
that uh, big people know better than the little people. The Gvirim and the Rabbanim know better than the, the, the poor and the, and the Amratim. And that group should dominate and tell the other group what to do. Today, I think we have a more sophisticated kind of approach. And at least we should. And I think we see it the other way around. Maybe it's because we're Americans. Where it's a bottom-up. And the classic manifestation I'm talking about is chinuch. You want people to come from? You have to provide some kind of chinuch. Was it day school? Or was it dafyomi? Or was it NCSY? Or you name it. And if you want things to happen in the community, it doesn't go top-down, it goes bottom-up. Who created the Hatzalah? The Misaskim? The Chaverim? You know, I don't know, the Masilla and all these other organizations that do good work. It's not from top down. It's not all the rabbis in America or the Rashivas got together and said, we're starting some Hatzalas. Opposite. Start from the bottom up, right? And then once it's uh, successful, then the guys at the top say, okay, we'll undertake to try to regulate it. It works out however it works out. The top down stuff don't work that great. That's why we have basin troubles in America. Fundamentally, a top-down kind of model. If it would be at a bottom-up, it would be more sound. But anyway, in the old days, the classic fashion, old-fashioned way of dealing with problems in Yiddishkeit was a top-down. Now, in the case of German Jewry, there was a time when things were great, and then it turned bad. Uh, if you go like Rashi's time, and 12th century time Balitosis, let's say, the Jews in Germany, broadly speaking, had it good. I'm not going into details in a podcast over here. They had it good. In the 13th century, things started to go south. Bad. That's when you had Marm Rottenberg arrested. That's when you started to have the pogroms. They started to have violence all over the place. And without, you know, going into detail, if you're interested, I talked about this in the past when I did the Maril and Jakob Wilde. They lived in a time when things went bad. And it was bad, bad. The persecutions, the Mesira, the conversions, uh, and of course the plagues. The public health was a bummer. You had the bubonic plague in the 1300s, and naturally the Jews were blamed for it. And it was, it, whole communities were wiped out, either driven out or wiped out. It was really rough. And the only thing the Jews could do only possible they could do was try to do their best to repair it. So in the 15th century, now I'm going to be speaking today about the 17th century, the beginning, but in the 15th century, the rabbis of that time did their best. They started schools, yeshivas, tried to introduce some kind of seder and order into the public. That's when they invented the smicha that we have today, yori, yori, yon, yon, and all that, to try to get some kind of licensing so you shouldn't have phonies running around claiming to be rabbis, claiming to be shochten, is what it is. And in such an anti-Semitic environment, prudence would dictate that the Jews should conduct themselves in a certain way. But there's always that idiot that feels like, like I say today, he's got to call up the talk show, you know. A, a Jew would do this and they get all the other Jews in trouble. And they couldn't regulate it well. So they tried their best. And every once in a while, <clears throat> the leading rabbis would try to get together if possible and try to issue takonas and group, you know, uh, decisions, never went so well because there was no real enforcement mechanism. 
and the German communities were all independent of each other <clears throat> and subject to different pressures. But when you see what they're dealing with, it tells you the problems of that time. A classic example is what I want to talk about today, which is the famous Rabbinerversammlung, the assembly of the Rabbonim in Germany, Western Germany, in Frankfurt, which they must have looked as most important community, in 1603, the beginning of the 17th century, <coughs> when Rudolf was still the uh, Holy Roman Emperor, and I'll get to that in a second. So what we're dealing with is an Asifas Rabbonim, to discuss the problems of what's happening now and try to issue taconas or something like that. Everybody should listen and we'll fix the problem. Notice they're trying to legislate sort of like a parliament. Now I'll say it again, as far as I know, it didn't work because they didn't have the tools to make it work. But it goes to show you a, a, a flash of insight into the social realities of 500 years ago, even though we always think of everybody being real from and it's yakish, oh boy, you know, you're, you're Bubby's Bubby's Bubby, and they kept everything. Whereas the reality is, some did, some didn't. Some did, some didn't. And the persecutions that started in the 1200s and continued and, and built up, I repeat, built up, in the 1300s, the 1400s, and into the 1500s, these persecutions left a mark and a scar on German Jewry. They did. And... It was a tough time. And then the poor rabbis are trying to, to hold the fort, as, it's, as, as they say. It wasn't simple. Because the problem you have in local communities always amplified by the tremendous geisha problems, the anti-Semitism, that was pervasive in a way that most of the people I'm talking to can't imagine. If you look at the art and the portrayal of the Jews and everywhere, you know, pigs and whatever, it's really, really bad. It's a very depressing subject. Now, it so happens that this um, assembly, as soon as I thought of this topic, I said, where do you have this? So, uh, there used to, there's a famous book by Louis Finkelstein, um, who was the president of the Jewish Theological Seminary after 1940, was a serious Talmud Chacham, was a weirdo and a half. Never could figure him out, especially during World War II, Instead of the hot soul, he was involved in all kinds of Meshuggan of things. You know, they, they saw it like it's going to be a glorious future for the JTS or whatever. It's, it's a strange guy. But he was a big Talmud Chacham. He did. And this is when the time when the conservative had what you and I would call a right-wing element to it. Although he knew full well that the communities are going to the left. But I'm not getting involved in that. And he wrote a lot of books and articles. And I've never been turned on by any of them. Nobody's been turned off by his writings. With one gigantic exception. There's one book he wrote with a home run. And that's the book I'm going to talk about right now. And that is, I think it was his dissertation. He publishes a book. And that's uh, from 1924. And that's called Jewish Self-Government in the Middle Ages. Which is really great. <laughs> okay? It's meat and potatoes. Jewish Self-Government in the Middle Ages. And that's a term that Cyrus Adler used to talk about um, these different asifas and vods that happened fairly, I'm going to say fairly often, but happened from time to time in Ashkenazi Jewry primarily uh, in the time of the Rishonim and the early Achronim. Venu Ta, 
Rashi, people like that. Every once in a while, excuse me, the Jewish leaders of different kehillahs would get together and sometimes they should talk on us or try to. And sometimes they stump, stuck and sometimes they didn't. It's a very complicated subject. And he goes in. Now what Louis Finkelstein did, Professor Finkelstein, was he did some serious homework. He found whatever's out there. A lot of the stuff was discovered in the 19th century in archives and places like that. And and he's a Talmud Chacham. So he gives you the Hebrew text, and then he translates in English quite well, I might say, quite well. And he gives his own um, interpretation of the events, part of which I agree with, and part of which not. That's that's not a problem. That's going to happen. And I asked myself, I knew this is primarily from the Middle Ages. 1603, though, is after the Middle Ages. But I said, to heck with it. Let me go and look. And sure enough, he does have what he called the Synod, S-Y-N-O-D, a mini Sanhedrin of 1603. And um, it's it, in my mind, it's very interesting. And this is what Frankfurt and the other area, communities in the area were dealing with at that time. And he has it as a uh, uh, a precy, a summary, what's going on, which I'm going to read you. And he actually has the Takanas themselves in English, which is really very good, right? Uh, I must say, like I said before, this book, he hit a home run. And there is Hebrew here somewhere, but I'm not sure this particular one has the Hebrew. And the Hebrew has a funny kind of history to it that I'll talk about in a second. To the cut right to the chase. Here all the rabbis are getting together at the beginning of the 17th century. Okay? And they're dealing with the, with the Tsaris and the problems that they have then. As he puts over here, um, there are provisions, I'm reading from him, there are provisions against appealing to the secular courts for redress, those ercos, which clearly was a big problem, otherwise they wouldn't be having to deal with it. Exhortation to see that the shoktim are duly qualified, he had problems with shrita, he had bad shoktim. Ordinances against buying wine from Goyen, you have stam yenam issues, which was very big problem in the 15th and 16th, 17th centuries especially in Italy, but here you see in Frankfurt and Germany, these yekkes are just doing stamienum, forbidding intermarriage with, um, with forbidding intermarriage with such Jews who are in the habit of buying wine from Gentiles. They're trying to use the top-down method, which say anybody who doesn't keep stamienum, you shouldn't marry their family. Okay? Um, deposing any rabbi found guilty of these permitting others to follow it. And if the rabbonim who give a green light for Stamienum, and there were. And the Morala Prague fought this in Moravia. So that rabbi should uh, be fired. Um, regulations regarding Smichel for the rabbi, so you shouldn't have some phony just saying he's a rabbi. Forbidding the grandization except by three heads of academies. The only, no, as we would call in America, no private Smichas. So a guy comes in and says, who made you a rabbi? These two are here and there. No, it's got to be Near Israel, YU, Nechan Berlin, or something like that. You know what I mean? Tells Lakewood, and Torvadas, the Rashi of A, B, and C. That's an attempt to bring some kind of order and regulation into the smicha process. Or um, to a young man before he's been married two years, nobody gets smicha unless you're married already two years. <clears throat> Refusing to recognize any person as a chover. You know, the Yekis have t- such a title as a chover. 
by any authority outside of Germany. So apparently, people must have sent Sadaka to Poland or something like that in return. The guy sends you a, a certificate as a cover, and this makes you have authority that you don't deserve. Denunciation, a practice of dealing in counterfeit coins and collecting debts by means of forged notes. Isn't that something? Jewish cheating practices in business. Okay? Jewish cheating practices in business. Which goes to show you none of these problems are old. I gotta tell you, um, well, I'll read it in Hebrew in a second. Um, these are the problems they're dealing with. Denunciation practice in doing this. Uh, denouncing, denouncing the practice of borrowing money or wares from government failing to pay and providing that one guilty of practice is neither be helped or defended against prosecution by the authorities. So this is the idea of, you know, you know you're going, these are crooked businessmen. They don't pay their debts. Um, prohibition against performing any marriage ceremony for one who transgresses these ordinances. Uh, so you should marry their family. A prohibition against buying milk from guys. So people didn't keep um Israel. Isn't that something? A prohibition against wearing clothes like that of the guy against forbidden mixtures of wool and usury. A prohibition against printing any book without a haskama from three rabbis, recognized rabbis, and can't buy any books without permission if they don't have it. Um, so the, again, you have this problem, like I say before, of people just writing something and putting it out there who says, you know what you do? And, and the Balabas, the Amaris, I mean, you know, well, how does he know? He reads the safer. He says, okay. No rabbi can seek to extend his jurisdiction over people under the jurisdiction of other colleagues. So, in other words, every community has to have its own role. And he's the only one that's postulating for his community. So, obviously, people didn't. A prohibition denying the power of any rabbis outside of Germany to make a cherem on anybody in Germany. And an exhortation that every community should pay the fair share of taxes, so you see people who are doing tax avoidance, and finally forbidding marriage with such people who won't accept the ordinances or knowing such practices if performed. Now, these taconas are, I think you would agree, not controversial. What I mean by that is, they certainly have nothing to do with politics. The American government should have no trouble with anything I just said. Adrabo, or the German government, or the government of Frankfurt. I mean, their internal Jewish stuff didn't bother anybody. They're just trying to make Jewish life more organized. As a matter of fact, they should applaud the fact that you shouldn't be into counterfeiting and, uh, you know, not payment of debts and things like that. In spite of that, the Goyim seem, it seems to be, in Frankfurt, like, freaked out they must have seen a whole bunch of rabbis show up. What the heck is going on over here? And there were Muslim, it was a guy, Kraus, who said, you know what's happening over here? It's the protocols of the elders of Zion. Of course, he didn't use those words, but that's what it boiled down to. He was a real schmo, and he played on the German fears. And he said, you basically have a protocols of Zion. These rabbis are getting together to concoct some kind of who knows what. And they're going to make a revolution against the Holy Roman Empire, which was what Germany was called. And they never got permission to uh, run such a thing. And do you know this eventually got all the way up to the Holy Roman Emperor, to Rudolf? And he really got angry. I don't know why he fell for this stuff. Obviously, the Malshinen knew their business very well. And they knew how to poison 
you know, the Jews, uh, the, 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 the rulers against the Jews, even people like Rudolf the Kaiser, who knew the morale, it wasn't so bad. But all of a sudden it got into his head that there's some kind of a Jewish plot. Like I say before, a 17th century version of the Protocols of Zion, or something like that, has nothing to do with there's any truth to it. it. has to do with whether the Malshinim could put it over. Now most of this stuff is in German articles, never hit it to the English. But um, the, the, all of a sudden the emperor and the city council of Frankfurt said, we want this uh, translated, what exactly did you guys do? And the Jews said, what has it got to do with you? It's got to do with Chovis, Rome, things like that. No, there's some secret thing going on. And the Jews had to prepare uh, translations that was forwarded to higher authorities. And the emperor got so angry, he says, I'm withdrawing my protection for the German Jews. You have to understand what that means. It's like the city says, uh, the police are not going to come and, and uh, arrest anybody if they go and do bad things in the Jewish neighborhood. That's all you need in the 17th century, even today. And it got really crazy until finally they had to bribe him and persuade him it wasn't true. It was a tough time as a result of all this. But you see, it gives you an insight to what's happening. Now, the for some reason or another, the Hebrew of this never survived. Um, there were those in the 1800s who said they found copies and printed it. They weren't accurate. But eventually, Rabbi Horowitz in Frankfurt found a real copy and published it. Um, I'm talking about uh, Marcus Horowitz, Mordechai Halevi Horowitz, who's a, a bait noir for the Hersheans because he was the rabbi of the non-Hersheans community. As you know, Sans Rebel Hirsch said, you have to be ostrit, you have to get out of the regular Kehillah, can't be in the same kill with the Reformed Jews, they have to be a separate Orthodox kill. But there were but that does not mean that all the Orthodox Jews in Frankfurt agreed with Sam Stranville Hirsch in the eighteen hundreds. Not at all. In fact it could even be, I don't know, maybe a rove or certainly a big minority uh, disagreed. They said, No, we want to be part of the regular community. Where Masha Rabbi Hirsch, we just don't agree he's wrong on this. And there was a lot of bad feeling. And so the reform the Kehillah, the, the non-from, very cleverly, in order to, you got to give them credit for tactics, in order to uh, decrease as much as possible the number of Orthodox Jews that would join Hirsch, so they said, we will set up, like you say today, uh, our own Orthodox community and give them whatever they want. So it knows you need a school, you need a mikvah, you need a vodakashos, and we the Reform will pay for it. And they did. And they appointed as the chief rabbi of the Gala a from guy, the Mordechai Levi Horowitz, who I believe was, was the Talmud of, of Hildesheimer, who was son-in-law of the Archlaner. He was a big Talmud Chacham. He wrote Shalos and Shubas called Mata Levi. Uh, but Hirsch was so angry, he says, you know, Atta Nosin yelled the potion. So they were, you know, in classic fashion, there were two Orthodox synagogues. And literally, like the joke, this the one... Like Davin, and that's the one I would never step foot in. And that's what it was like. So this Rabbi Marcus Horowitz, um, and he was getting carte blanche by the reform. When he came in, he fired the whatever you call Vatakashra, something he was under the reform. He fired everybody, started all over again. They said, okay, do whatever you want. So um, he was a historian as well. He had a PhD. And you know, one of his Hildesheimer types, he was a Talmud Chacham, as I say before. If he wrote Shalson Tumas, he really was a Talmud Chacham. I mean, he knew I learned. 
And he wrote a famous book called The History of the Rabbis of Frankfurt, the Frankfurter Rabbinian, which the, in which he went through all the chief rabbis, I guess you'd call it, of Frankfurt down the centuries. It's one of these works of 19th century antiquarianism, which is a necessary thing to do. Before you build history, you have to have the facts. Then you make the chalm out of the facts. And it's translated the Mosada Rav Cook, back in the 50s, I think, had a thing where they translate a whole bunch of this Yekisha German language um, stuff into Hebrew. And it's called Rabboni Frankfurt. It's quite good. I invite Tragus of Geschichte, his Michigan, a contribution to the history of the Jewish community in Frankfurt. And uh, you can get it. It's published by most Rabbi Cook in 1972. And this Rabbi Horowitz, as a historian, he dug up the um, original uh, Takanas of 1603 and published them in the accurate form, not in the inaccurate form. And he gives a whole business about how it led almost to a, a gigantic pogrom. Uh, like I said, the emperor got mad. People went crazy. Even though there's nothing in there you know, against the government at all. So he has it in Hebrew, I mean, and he has Takonis al-Shchita, for example, Livduk as HaShortim L'Shan Lohan, Hilcho Yaseira, you know, to, you crack down on the bad Shortim for they know how to do the knives, Maskirin Yisr Yayin Nesach, Maskirin Bebikr Bebesa Mirzach, they had to declare war on Jews going to bars. Because when you go to bars, this is Germany, there's no booze, it's a wine country. You know, wine, brandy, uh, what do I talk about? Vermouth, you know, cognac, that kind of stuff. So it's mamash, I mean, stamina. Anybody, they say, who lives in a wine-producing area, which is what Western Germany, that's where Rabbi Wallace found it. That is the area, the Rhineland and that general area, is a very rich wine-producing country. And they said, well, every Jew who lives in a place has to secure, make sure that they produce kosher wine. Uh, kosher wine. And they said, you know, whoever does it, and I remember they said like this, and you can't keep the kosher wine with the trafe wine, you know, in the same room. Rav uh, Mashkiach. Anybody to be a Rav Rashi or a Mashkiach on Kashrus? Has to be a smicha, as you would say today, or Kabbalah, signed by three Rabbanim. Now listen to this. They say you can't use counterfeit. Okalos, or, you know, uh, clipped coins, you know what I mean? They're lighter than they're supposed to be. These are all shtick of, of, of uh, economic crooks. Yidin as well as non Yidin. Uh, and Jews should not buy from Ganavim, as we say from the, from the questionable sources, like where'd you get that? You know, don't ask that question. Look at this. Because the guy in the Germans will say, Where's their guy? Obviously, the Jews have no morality. Um, the, the payers don't mean anything. If they're buying stolen goods, or they themselves are engaging in counterfeiting. Do you know the Ramah, I forget where in the in the, in the Choshimish, but says there's no Mesira Iser when it comes to counterfeiters. 
because that can cause a pogrom overnight for understandable reasons. It's not for the Jews to say, like this. we didn't do it, you know. Uh, that year did it. Uh-uh. So this was life in those days. Now, wait a minute. Uh, anybody that borrows money won't pay it's supposed to be expelled from the kehilo see that because uh, and if he goes bankrupt nobody's allowed to help him uh, get back on his feet pay his debts because he caused it through his bad Business practices. Otherwise, it'll look like, again, the government will say, well, all you Jews are in together. See, a major part of the anti-Semitism, and they're not wrong about this, is you say, I didn't do it, this dude did it. Well, what are you guys doing to him? What do you mean, what am I doing to him? I'm not responsible to do to him. If you don't go and punish him or do something, then it means you're part of it. You see, that's how they tie him. That's what they say. You just got to get used to it. Uh, and these rabbis in Germany in 1603 are aware of this reality and they're trying to legislate against it. Uh, as I said before, there's all kinds of stuff there about Chalv Yisrael or non-Chalv Yisrael. Listen to this. There are a lot of Jews that they're dressing like Goyim. And that means, listen closely, that means there were Jews who were business purposes or otherwise that dressed in Geisha clothing. So that means they don't have a Jewish kind of beard or a Jewish kind of pass. So otherwise you can't pass. Otherwise you'd be like the Chassid is wearing a, a baseball hat, you know. I mean, that doesn't do anything. You had a problem, you know, they, they felt, they're Ashkenazi Jews, that a Jew is supposed to dress like and look like a Jew. But a lot of people said that's inconvenient for my business. There's so much anti-Semitism by going the road as a salesman or whatever you do, I'll get killed or hurt. And this problem you had among Ashkenazi Jews since before Rashi. Remember, who is there? Or is or somebody who says, I don't like to in France, they don't even wear yarmulke and shawl. You see? Uh, they're all shaven. Because they figured when the Jew hits the road, if he looks Jewish, in some places, uh, it'll, it'll, earn, it'll turn out no good. And here they're trying to legislate against it. This was another problem always you had with Jews. And it's mentioned in the conventions and the sinners, the Cephas, over and over again throughout the Middle Ages and afterwards. And that is the problem of what I guess we would call overdressing, particularly by the women, even by the men, but particularly by the women. Europe, unlike America, Europe is very class um, divided. There's the upper class, the lower class, and the middle class. There's the aristocracy and the non-aristocracy and so forth. And you were expected to dress according to your class. It really bothered people if you didn't. So the middle class is supposed to dress somber, black and white. You know, you look at the pictures... There's certain, like if you're, if you know anything about all about art history, and you read, you look at European paintings, you can see right off the bat, this guy has a haircut, and a clothing, and a tie or a scarf of the middle class, and Plony has one of the aristocracy, and the other one is one of the poor, 
And you're supposed to dress according to your station. It bothers the Goyim a lot if people dress beyond their station. Shoes. Now, in America, you don't have that. But you had it then. Um, by the way, a lot of this has to do with which class is in. Um, in Europe, the upper class is the aristocracy. So people want to ape the aristocracy. They'll dress in their colors, their fancy sort of things. Um, in the last 150 years, at least, the middle class rocks. And so even the rich people dress like the middle class. You know what I'm saying? Even rich people dress like them. In the Queen of England, you know, the, the, the prince, they don't dress in the kind of fancy schmancy, super colorful uniforms that you would have had a couple hundred years ago. It's the middle class. But in the 18th century, 17th century, 16th century, and all that, the aristocracy dressed in a very distinctive way. And every Jewish lady who could afford it wanted to get a dress like that. And it really bothers the climate, causes anti Semitism. This apparently caused so much trouble that they wanted this abolished. People should dress differently, and it's like a month to put this into effect. Now, today, this seems to us in a mabakach, but obviously, the very fact that they're scared of this means that it doesn't matter whether you're right or wrong or silly. If the Goyim are full of sinner, when they see the Jew dressed like this, especially a Jewish woman, it could cause a riot. Is it worth that? You know what I'm saying? Is it worth it? There are many times you find in the Jewish history, I remember in, um, what was it again? In that book on Jewish and mercantilism, I forget the author, he has this uh, guy who was in Venice in the synagogue there in the talking the 1600s. As I was shocked, the women in the women's section dressed like a duchess. You see? Because uh, behind closed doors, they felt they could do it. It wasn't really a problem. Okay? Um, and of course, we have the shotness problems also when you dress that way. And ribbis is what it is. Um, and again, they try to control the printing of sperm. Because what if a guy says like this? Like you found in Israel not long ago. He said it's a mystery to kill Gaim or something like that. Uh, thanks a lot. He can get everybody killed because the guy wrote something stupid in there. You get it? So it has to be that there's some kind of control they th- they tried. Below lethal shows They have to have three Av Bezdin's sign a come on it. Okay? And again, I told you that they had things that are from um, people from other tailors shouldn't interfere. And these local killers, um, you know, like I guess you say, to preserve the, the um, what shall I say, the independence of each community. Uh, some of those things seem like petty. They weren't petty. Now, it didn't work. What do I mean by that? You find the same complaints appearing a generation later, and you find the Goyen complaining about the Jewish overdressing and that sort of thing. And um, you find particularly in Germany, that the ghetto conditions worsen, actually. They they raise even higher. I remember they said a, a Jew can't even go to the marketplace until except one day a week, and, you know, when nobody else is there, the Jews were considered disgusting, uh, literally disgusting. And nothing they could do, I mean, they're trying over here their best, but it didn't work.
Now, I have to say, he has the whole doggone thing in English. Um, I'm not going to take the trouble to read it all. If anybody's interested in what I'm talking about, you just get the Finkelstein book. It's on page 257 and afterwards, page after page. And he sees that, um, you know, there's just these problems that don't go away. They don't go away. And he's not really talking about being Michal Shabbos per se, but you do see the basins fell apart and everybody's going to Gaisha courts. You do see people are playing games with Kashras. You do see that people are avoiding their tax obligations, right? You do see the Shrit is in bad shape. You do see that uh, uh, wine, the rules of wine are not being you know, kept. You do see that there are rabbis who are giving heters for all this. You do see that's the problem what they say before. They, the big problem was unqualified rabbanim, right? You do see that the smicha process is being um, perverted. You do see that there are sharp practices among some Jews, which bring the whole kahil into not only disrepute, but um, danger, like not paying, involving stolen goods, um, the counterfeiting, and all the rest. Of it. These are how should I put? Call Yisrael Chaverim. It's not just a, a platitude. For better or worse, if one Jew gets involved in doing these sort of things, they'll blame all the Jews, especially because you're not ostracizing him. So that means what he's saying is really okay. That's why they try over here to ostracize him. But I don't know how successful they weren't, that sort of thing. Remember, the killers in Germany were very small. And um, what can I tell you? You know, uh, uh, it's hard to make these things happen, okay? It's hard to make these things happen. So, um, you yeah, have a problem with bad mishalachs over here. <laughs> it's quite interesting, right? Um, whoever wants to make a collection for sake of his daughter's dowry can raise no more than 180 gulden. Uh, you know, it's been, people were, were collecting too much money, you know what I mean, uh, for, for um, what's right, in the dunya, and therefore, it, it it hurts other tzedakah contributions and things like this. No contributions can be given to wicked men. <laughs> you know, sounds sounds something familiar to our time and age. So, that's the Kronos of 1603, our classic example of the old school of top-down, in which you tried through logical, because all this was done by significant rabbinic, who you haven't heard of most of them? I'll, I'll tell you right now. You have to be, uh, you know, from Germany in the 1800s. You know, there's a Yosef Me Mainz and David Me Bingen and Moshe Oppenheim and Aronson Freilich and Ben Frankfurt. I mean, these are not names that people know, but they were important rabbinim in Germany. They're important Kahila leaders. But just because you pass a law, as I said before, if you don't have an enforcement mechanism, so what good is it? And you could not have an enforcement mechanism when the kill is small and the guy you're arresting is my second cousin. So, you know, my wife's family is going to make sure that, you know, they don't, they, you don't go and, and hurt the guy, even though it may be necessary to do so. So this is the paradox of the kill of old. It was an autonomous coercive situation, but the autonomy and the coercion was always modified by sociological realities on the ground of weak and small communities. So the Jews did their best, and all these Rabbanim, I'm sure, was a Shem Shemayim, but 
how far does it go? A few years after this, uh, a completely separate riot broke out called the Fetmelcha riot, and the Jews were killed or chased out of the city. But then the imperial government, uh, you know, uh, reconquered the city, let's say, and, and brought the Jews back in. So, it was a, you know, it's an example of overnight your whole existence could be destroyed. And by the way, then came the Thirty Years' War, which ironically was good for the Jews in Frankfurt because the Protestants killed the Catholics and vice versa. And each side needed the Jews as a middleman for their own purposes. So there, the Jews in Frankfurt were okay. So life was very, very strange if you live in the, in the, that part of the world. We're not dealing with the time of Rashi anymore. And eventually, you know, everybody came to conclude that, um, you know, it's, it's always better in Eastern Europe. The only time that, cha- that this changed, these bad conditions changed, uh, was with the French Revolution. Because the French under Napoleon conquered all this, and they broke down the ghetto and did all these sort of things. That's a fact. Whatever Titans have against Napoleon, but, you know, the destruction of these kinds of uh, ghetto situations really was due to him. But before that, you had Rabbanim, you had Rosh Hashivas, you had Svarim, you had all the rest of it. But you always, always had a lot of junk in mind. So keep this in mind whenever you're dealing with um, old communities, particularly in that part of the world. And uh, anyway, with that, I would once again end by thanking Rabbi Weil. And uh, this would be a schuss for the memory of the grandfather, Yisachar ben Shmuel Halevi. With that, I wish you a good day. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.